Back in 1980, a woman named Rosie won the Boston Marathon. Boston Marathon was just recently run, I guess a few days ago. She won in 1980, and she didn't just win. Rosie shattered the record for the fastest female time in the history of the race. And so, as you can imagine, people were amazed. They couldn't get over how quickly she had finished. But very soon after the race, some people began to cry foul. Eyewitnesses came forward claiming that they saw Rosie finish the race and she wasn't sweating. She wasn't breathing heavily. They thought that was very odd. Then at the checkpoints all along the way throughout the marathon, nobody could seem to remember watching Rosie pass by, certainly not in the lead. She didn't show up in any videos of the race or any photos that were taken, so an investigation was launched, and eight days later, Rosie was disqualified. Her victory was taken away from her in disgrace. Now, still to this day, people don't really know how she pulled it off, although the assumption is that she entered in, she snuck into the race with about a half mile left to go and just jogged it on out through the finish line to win. That explains why she had no sweat, why she wasn't breathing hard. Any of us could have done it. Y'all, when something seems too good to be true, it's usually because it is. And, And we, a lot of times, we have this, maybe this cynical approach to life. You get a letter in the mail that says, you've won! And you just throw, you don't even open it, you throw it away. It's too good to be true. It's therefore it's not true, right? That's how things work. And we have to be mindful of this fact that when we celebrate Easter Sunday, the great day of the church, uh, we celebrate a day that is that really is at the top of the list. This is the greatest, the ultimate, too good to be true story. We're talking about a man who was God, who died for the forgiveness of our sins, and then was raised to new life again. That's, that's hard to believe. It's hard to stomach. It's, it's, frankly, it seems too good to be true. And that's why for us, listen, Easter is not an interesting idea mixed in together with the rest of our Christian beliefs. No, Easter is the linchpin. That's the way the Apostle Paul put it in the New Testament. Paul said, if Jesus is not raised, then our faith is in vain, and we are of all people the most to be pitied. Paul says Easter is not important. It is ultimate. It's ultimate. It's the thing that makes us who we are and gives us hope. Now, this this wasn't lost on the gospel writers. The men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the men who recorded the gospel accounts, the resurrection accounts, listen, they knew how outlandish this story was. They knew that this was something that had never before been seen or heard. It was incredibly hard to digest and believe. And yet it's fascinating. When we read the resurrection accounts in all of the Gospels, all four, we don't see dramatic embellishment, even though, of course, resurrection is a miracle. We see something very earthy and real, not the way we might script it out. Jesus does not return from the dead on a mountaintop with throngs of people surrounding him and he's 10 feet tall and glowing white. No. We find actually very earthy stories, stories that are very true to life. In fact, what we're going to look at today is the story of Jesus' first encounter, and it happens in private with a woman named Mary Magdalene in a garden outside his tomb. It's from John chapter 20. If you've got a Bible or the Bible on your phone, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 20, the end of the Gospel of John. 
We'll also put the scripture on the screen here behind me. I I told you a story a minute ago about a woman who won a great victory only to have it taken away. She was disqualified. Well, we're going to see in this Easter story, Easter kind of works in reverse fashion. Everybody in this story, at least at first, is in some sense disqualified, even Jesus. And yet victory is coming. Victory is coming. So follow with me here as we begin this chapter, chapter 20 of John in verse 1, where John says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. This was the stone that sealed Jesus' grave. It's been rolled away. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's way of identifying himself. That's John. And she said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that Jesus must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Okay, so Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early on Sunday before the sunrise, and she's coming why? She's coming to mourn. In fact, there were other women with her. She uses the plural we, we've, we've seen the empty tomb. They came, though, to, in the hopes that they might get into the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices. That was a typical way of grief and of showing uh, love for a person in your mourning for their death. Right? But you notice this right off the bat, as, as we enter into this story, that not a single disciple of Jesus was already there waiting at the tomb. Not one single person anticipated and prepared for a resurrection. And that may seem strange to us, especially so many years later. We've read the stories. You're probably familiar with the story. It seems very odd to us that the disciples of Jesus, both the men and the women, they knew him so well. They had traveled with him, some of them, for three years. They knew him better than anybody. They sat under his teaching, and yet they had zero expectation that he was going to rise again, even though he told them he would. If we read through the gospel accounts, on multiple occasions, Jesus predicted with specificity that he would be handed over, that he would suffer and be crucified, but that he would raise again on the third day. They should have known it was coming, and yet they weren't there. They weren't prepared. They didn't expect it. Now, why is that? Just a quick little background here. These these disciples are ancient Jewish people. The ancient Jewish people did not have a category for a crucified Messiah. The Messiah is the man who is going to come and overthrow the yoke of the enemy, in this case the Romans, and is going to liberate the people of Israel and restore them back to glory. That's the Messiah's job. And Jesus comes along claiming just that. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One. The disciples are following him, just certain that this is true. He's the one. But then on Good Friday... 
The Romans nailed him to a cross and put him to death. And frankly, in the minds of the ancient Jews, in the minds of Jesus' own disciples, that was a great big defeat. That was a failure. There is no such thing as a crucified Messiah. Whatever they thought Jesus was, whatever Jesus claimed to be, clearly he wasn't. Show's over, and everybody's now going to have to move on. So what we have up front, we've got Jesus, in a sense, disqualified. Everything he claimed to be, everything they hoped he was, he clearly wasn't. He was dead. And beyond that, the ancient Jews... They didn't believe in such a thing as resurrection here in time and space. Some Jews believed in a resurrection that would happen, yes, at the end of time. Mary spoke those words to Jesus in John 11. At the end of time, there will be a resurrection of the righteous. God will raise the righteous people back to life. Surely Jesus would be one of those at the end of time, but not here and now. They had no category for these things. So Jesus has failed as the Messiah in the eyes of the world, and he surely isn't coming back. So there are no disciples at the tomb waiting for him on Sunday morning. And maybe it seems to us so silly, oh, if I were a disciple, we'd have cake and streamers and balloons, and we'd have have a countdown clock waiting for Jesus to bust out, right? Of course, here he comes. But no, no, for them, this was the end of the road. Disqualified. He wasn't coming back. Time to move on. But y'all see what Mary, when Mary arrives at the tomb, Mary Magdalene, she notices immediately something's amiss. The stone has been rolled away. Something's wrong. And in her astonishment, she does the first thing she probably can think to do. She runs and she tells Peter and John what's happened. She goes to the disciples. Well, Peter and John, they race to the tomb. They're running to see. John wins that race. And he makes really clear to tell us, by the way, because guys are still guys. John wins the race. I'm sure he you know, ragged on Peter their whole lives for that. I got there first. But they reach the tomb, and they enter in, and it's very peculiar. Jesus is gone, but the grave clothes aren't. Now, why mention such a, a seemingly small detail? Other Gospels mention it too. Peter and John walk in, and, and they're thinking, they're looking, they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're investigating. Wait a minute, if, if someone came in and stole his body, if grave robbers took Jesus' body... Why would they leave the grave clothes? Why would they take the clothes off of him first and take him out naked? That doesn't make any sense. And not only that, but, but the, the face cloth, John tells us, was actually rolled up nice and neat and put in its own place. Very thoughtful. Somebody thought this out. They can't figure it out. The disciples are thinking. They're wondering. But the point here is that they can't, they can't comprehend what has happened. They can't compute this. John says he saw and believed. But listen, right after that, he says they didn't understand the scripture that Jesus was supposed to rise from the dead. These men are trying to calculate in their minds what could have happened here, but they haven't stepped across the line of faith that Jesus is actually somewhere alive. That's why after they look around for a while, it says they returned again to their own homes. The disciples and I don't say this as a judgment, but they were ignorant. Now keep in mind, John is the one writing this all down. John, who was there that day, who's writing about himself and Peter together, if the gospel writers like John, if they wanted to appear clued in and smart and heroic, he could have, years later, he could have written it that way. I mean, who would have been there to really argue with him, you know? They could have made themselves look better than they really did. 
But what do the disciples look like in the Gospels around the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus? They don't look credible. In fact, they look pretty much disqualified as faithful followers of Jesus. When Jesus was on trial and then he was crucified, the disciples ran like cowards. They all said they would suffer and die with him if it came to it, but they didn't. They let him suffer and they watched from afar. Even here in the empty tomb, we see John acknowledging ignorance, cluelessness. They didn't understand, so they went back home. Why would John paint himself and the disciples in such an unfavorable light if he didn't have to? If he were concocting a legend in hopes that people would believe it, why would he make himself look so out of the loop? Well, the the most obvious explanation is this is just the way it really happened. See, John is not interested in his image. He's just interested in telling the story. He's interested in telling the truth. And so Peter and John come across in this story as those disqualified to really say, hey, I was a follower of Jesus till the end. It didn't really look that way. But that's the way it happened. They go back home. But Mary stays. Mary Magdalene stays. Pick up the story with me here in verse 11. Mary was not going to go back home. She, Mary, was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary is distraught, as we could imagine. She's absolutely beside herself. She doesn't know where Jesus is. She can't get it out of her mind. She refuses to leave, right? What's going on with Mary Magdalene here? Do we know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene? We really don't. But there's a key detail of her life that would help explain her activity in John chapter 20. Way back, don't don't turn there, but way back in Luke chapter 8, we find out that Mary Magdalene became a follower of Jesus after Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Now, that's quite a detail Luke gives us. He doesn't tell us the story. He doesn't elaborate. He just gives us that little detail and then moves on. But what we can infer, if we know that much about Mary Magdalene, then we can say very safely that this is a woman who at one time in her life was completely overwhelmed by spiritual darkness. Her life was an absolute mess, completely in torment. But Jesus himself, Jesus came along one day and healed her. He set her free. He gave her life. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see her acting like this, completely falling apart, sobbing at the tomb. She just loves Jesus so much. She owes him everything. She's not going to go home when his body is missing. And so she's searching, she's looking, she's wondering, and then she encounters these angels. And this is interesting that Mary is so distraught that even the the angels don't really faze her. You notice this? In the Bible, when someone encounters an angel, they are frozen in fear. They are totally disarmed. Well, when Mary encounters these angels, she's almost brushing past them. They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. All she wants is Jesus. But you notice now, what is she looking for? She's not looking for a risen Jesus either. Faithful Mary. She's just looking for a body. Just like anyone else would have been in this case. They've taken his body away, and I don't know where it is. She didn't anticipate a risen Christ either. Well, now look what happens in verse 14. (laughs) 
when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. The very first resurrection appearance encounter, Mary Magdalene alone in the garden. It's an amazing story. It's hard for us when we read this to really put ourselves into the story. I mean, we read it, in a sense, over the shoulder here, and it's a wonderful thing. But I, it's hard for me, and, and so I'm sure for you, to really imagine the absolute turn of events and emotions, what was going on in Mary's heart in this moment. Would you just put, her, put yourself in her shoes if you can? I mean, the best you can. I want you to think about this. Think about how the last couple of years of her life have played out leading up to this moment. That here is a woman whose life was once in absolute torment. Demon possession, we don't have any context for that. The, of the, of the, the, the ugliness and the darkness and despair of something like that. This is, we're talking about a person who had no hope, no future, no light, only darkness. A cloud of heavy darkness over her all the time. And then she meets a man named Jesus who powerfully and graciously sets her free, who loves her and saves her and gives her dignity, and he calls her to follow him. And y'all, now life is never the same for her. An, an, an entirely new world has been opened up, a life that she never dreamed possible. She is free and a follower of Jesus now. It's amazing. But then as quickly as it came upon her, it was snatched away all over again. John tells us that Mary Magdalene was one of the women at the cross on Good Friday who watched Jesus die. That she stood by helplessly and watched his blood run out and listened to his screams of agony. And there was nothing she could do to save him. The one who had saved her was now helpless himself, dying before her eyes. And her entire world in that moment, I'm sure, just came crashing back down. Every sweet thing in her life was made bitter again. Surely, I mean, what was she going to do now? He's gone. Then Sunday morning comes, and maybe the sun is just beginning to peek over the horizon. And a single word makes everything new again. Mary. Mary. Can you even imagine? You think Jesus was just trying to get her attention? He could have said, hey! Mary. He was speaking directly into her heart. When, when he said, Who, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? She just assumes him to be the gardener. But at the sound of her name, when the Savior speaks her name, everything changes. And y'all, the, the resurrection of Jesus is not and cannot be simply a, a, an important religious event. 
No, it's meant to be deeply personal. It's something that for Mary and for us, for you and me, it's meant to be personal. And here's why. Here's why this is so important. The basic nature of religion says there is a path you can follow that will get you to your desired end. Whatever your end, whatever your goal is, whether it be heaven or paradise or enlightenment, whatever it is, there's a path that will get you there. There's a way to get there. And the way typically is always the same, that you get there through obedience, through diligence, through prayer, through meditation, through observances and rituals, and you can get where you want to go. In a sense, you earn your way. You climb the ladder. You get there. Now, we have our own version of that here in the South, in the American South, that if you want to go to heaven, you don't want to go to the bad place, of course, right? So if you want to go to heaven, then what do you need to do? Well, you need to keep your nose clean, at least in public. You need to keep a Bible close by. Always have a Bible nearby just in case. You need to keep the golden rule the best you can. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in the end, sprinkle some church in there, do whatever you got to do. And then in the end, you'll get where you want to go. In the end, you'll be enough to get into heaven. And most of us, I believe, at some point in our lives have at least subconsciously taken that message to heart. But y'all, that's not good news. That's just religious advice. That's just religious advice. And in that case, somebody like Mary Magdalene would have never gotten in. Somebody with her past? And frankly, I wouldn't get in either. No, we need good news. And the good news of Jesus says that Jesus himself went to the cross for you, for you, and that he was raised again for you to make you right with God, to make you eternally right with God, that you might have true relationship with God. If you and I are just trying harder to be better, if we're just trying to faithfully, dutifully walk the path in hopes that it will turn out well in the end, We'll never know God like this in the way that God has chosen to make himself known. No, this only comes as a gift of grace, not a path that you follow, not a thing that you earn, but something you receive with open hands that's given to you. That's why Jesus characterized himself like this. This is from John 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his own life for his sheep. And my sheep know me, and I know them. Do you see in Jesus' words that there's relationship, there's intimacy, there's provision, there's protection, there's nourishing, there's, there's so much to that relationship. It's not, I'm the good shepherd who shows the sheep where to go, and they've got to figure it out on their own. No, I lay my life down for them, because Jesus' heart and his desire is to know you and that you might know him in return. That's why in a single word, right here in John 20, in one word, Mary, it communicates so much. Jesus says so much that the God of the whole universe delights to save you and to call you by name, to know you at the deepest level, and to love you with all that he has. Mary discovered that on the first Easter Sunday. And I hope we all know what that is, to know and be known. Now, what's Mary going to do now? Jesus has just revealed his risen now identity to her. What's she going to do? She does what any of us would have done in the same situation. She turns around and she grabs hold. 
She clings to Jesus as tightly as she possibly can. And that's where we pick up in verse 17. Jesus says to her, Stop clinging to me, or don't hold me so tightly, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Um, Mary is more than likely, she's down on the ground, hugging Jesus around the, the, the ankles and his legs. And Jesus says something we, we might not expect here. Stop clinging to me. Now, when he says that, he's not rebuking her. He's not shooing her away as if she's doing something wrong. No. What Jesus is doing, I think he's trying to point her to a greater reality here that right now she's missing. As much as she loves Jesus, as devoted as she is to Jesus, think about Mary for the past, you know, 48, 72 hours or so, like she, her life has been completely, like, fallen off a cliff. Everything is horrible, right? Just grief beyond grief. And yet at the snap of a finger now, she's overwhelmed with joy. How, how would you react? I lost you once. I'll never lose you again. I'll never let you go. That makes sense. But Jesus is communicating something greater than that to her right here. Jesus is saying to her, Mary, this is a new day. You did not lose me, and you can never lose me. You'll never spend another day of your life or for all eternity apart from me. You'll never be again without me. And besides, Mary, you've got a purpose to fulfill. You've got work to do. I want you to go to my brethren, go to the disciples, and tell them what you've seen, and tell them to wait for me. Be a witness to them, too. Now, I mentioned this earlier that, that at the beginning of this story, everybody here is disqualified. Everybody, including Jesus. I mean, if we just read it for what it is, at the beginning of this story, before we're aware of a resurrection, even Jesus starts out as a failed Messiah, that the disciples assumed him to be a failure. They are, they've, they've huddled up and retreated to their own homes, probably in fear of suffering for being his followers. But the show's over. The world's going to keep on going as it always has, just as it always has with other messianic pretenders. Other men came along claiming to be someone great, claiming to represent the Jewish people and overthrow the Roman government. Guess what happened to them? They died too. Jesus is just another in a long line. He's failed. But that's, of course, not how the story ends. That's not what we find in the words of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Now, remember, Peter was the, uh, the denier. Peter was the man who did not exhibit faith in the face of suffering. He ran. Peter's the one, even at the empty tomb, who at best just kind of shrugged his shoulders and went back home. But in Acts chapter 2, this is later now, listen to what Peter says about, about what Jesus has done. Acts 2, uh, Peter says, God raised Jesus up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter, Peter got it. Peter finally understood. Y'all, when Jesus rose from the grave, it was not just an impressive display of divine power. It was proof positive for all eternity that he is indeed the Son of God who came to conquer death and hell and the grave, who came to overcome once and for all our sins and the evil in the world, that Jesus Christ has done it, 
The, the, the resurrection is, is interesting. If Jesus really rose from the dead, man, that's, that's pretty amazing. But if we understand why he rose as the declaration of God that all things are forevermore new, that because I live, Jesus says, you now live in me, then he is no longer disqualified. He is the true Messiah. He is our Savior. Well, what about the disciples? Remember, the disciples, they come across as disqualified here, too. I mean, they abandoned Jesus at his arrest. Um, Peter denied ever knowing him. You know that famous story? I, even on Sunday morning, the disciples are, are they're clueless. They don't come across as credible and faithful and, and bold. But you see, we, I, I almost kind of walked past this in verse 17. Jesus says something in verse 17 very interesting. He tells Mary, Go to my brethren. Go to my brothers. You say, that, what's interesting about that? Jesus is calling these disciples family. He didn't call them disciples. He didn't even call them friends, although those things were true as well. He says, go to my brothers. These men who were cowardly, who were faithless, who were ignorant, Jesus says, I redeem them. They're mine. Jesus did not rise from the dead and go find a better group of men to follow him. The first guys weren't good enough. Let's see who else I can drum up who will be better than them. No, go to my brothers and tell them they're in. In another, in another gospel, Jesus mentions Peter specifically by name, the one who denied him. Go tell my disciples and Peter where to meet me. He is not lost. He is not disqualified. He's in. And then lastly, we've got Mary Magdalene. Probably, probably worst of all, we've got the demon-possessed woman. And y'all, what we know of the culture of the time, regardless of what Mary had become as a follower of Jesus, she would have certainly been a social outcast, a religious outcast. Nobody would have been able to get over her past life. And even if they recognized a change in her, they would have always kept an eye out for Mary. Because nobody like Mary can ever have credibility again after what she's been, after who she's been and what she's done. Who on earth is going to believe her testimony? And yet here in this moment, in this story, Mary Magdalene is the only person in the world who has seen and touched the risen Lord. Why? If Jesus wanted to return and make a splash, right? Why? Couldn't he have done better than Mary? He knows they're probably not going to believe her testimony anyway. This, Luke tells us that when the, when, the, when the women told the disciples what had happened, they said, this is nonsense. They didn't believe them. Couldn't Jesus have appeared to somebody more impressive, more significant, more important than her? But y'all, that's the whole point. Because if the grace of God is not for Mary, then it's not for anybody. That's the whole point. If the grace of God is not for Mary Magdalene, someone like her, then it's not for you and me either. Because here's the truth. The truth is that every single one of us has been spiritually disqualified. We know, if you're, if you're willing to be honest in your own heart with yourself, you know that it's true, just like the people we read about in this story. All of us, at some point along the way, have been cowardly and foolish and faithless. All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, there's darkness in our past. And frankly, there's even darkness now in our present that we hope no one ever sees 
or knows about. It would ruin us to be found out. We are spiritual, we are people who are spiritually disqualified. We can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. So what hope do we have? Well, we have the same hope that Mary had. The same hope that Peter and John had. What we see in this story, that's our hope. Listen, we have a crucified Savior who when he looked upon us in all of our disqualifying sin, he voluntarily and gladly took that sin upon himself and nailed it to the cross for us. When God esteems a crucified Savior, he looks upon Jesus and he sees what's been done for you and therefore all your sins can be forgiven. We have a merciful Savior who with tenderness would call us his family. We're his brothers and sisters by faith. And he delights to know and call you by name. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. What tenderness he's given to us. And we have a risen Savior a risen Savior who can say to us even now, right where you sit, he can say to you, because I live, you may have life in my name. Because he lives, we can live in him. And I want to call you, right right where you are, right now, I want to call you to trust him for this grace. Not to assume it because you were raised around church. I, I spent half my life doing that. But for you to trust Him for what He's done for you, sincerely to look to Him, to thank Him, to receive Him. Y'all, the the word grace means gift. This is a gift. This is not something you earn. This is not something you have to live up to and maintain. This is something that is given to you by a gracious God. And to be a Christian means simply this, that you put all of your weight, all of your trust, not on yourself, but on Jesus Christ. The scripture says he qualifies us to share in in an inheritance of light. For all eternity, the riches of God are ours because we have trusted not ourselves, but him. He was crucified to forgive your sins. And he was raised again for your justification. That means that in his resurrection, he has made you eternally right with God. There is no one to condemn you, not even yourself. Jesus has paid it all. If all of that has been done for you, And you have never in your heart, sincerely, if you've never turned to him to acknowledge, to receive this precious gift, then what better time than right now? We don't make a show of it. You don't have to pray a special prayer. You don't have to do anything. But acknowledge the need of your sin and the gracious provision of a Savior who forgives it all. He loved you that much. Y'all, I told you, Easter is the greatest of the two good-to-be-true stories, and it is. But we just come to, the, we come to a level place where we have, to, we have to decide here. If it indeed, if it is too good to be true, if it's a great legend, a wonderful story, maybe a spiritual lesson at best, but it's not really true. In that case, 
We could have beaten everybody to lunch today, all right? And I'm sorry. We've wasted our time, and, and beyond that, we're wasting our lives. The world should pity us for this ridiculous belief. But if it's true, and it is, it is. If Easter is true, if the resurrection is true, then it's a new day. Today is a new day. A day not of darkness, but of light. A day not of death, but of life. Because the one who came before us, who died for us, who was raised for us, he says, now because I live, you may have life in my name. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a wonderful message of good news that you have loved us in spite of our disqualifying sins. None of us have earned our way in this room today. None of us will earn our way to heaven. It can't be done. Thank you that we don't have to. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't come to give us a better path to follow, a better ladder to climb. You never told us, just keep your nose clean, keep your Bible close by, and you'll be okay. You sent your only Son that through his death and resurrection we might have life. Would you turn our hearts this morning to that great reality? Some of us have never known you in that way, and today everything changes. Some of us have come to faith but are drifting, are wandering, are struggling. And we need a renewal today of this precious grace. We need to know, Lord, that, that a wayward sheep is not lost from your sight because you are the good shepherd. Lord, affirm these great truths that we might set our feet strongly, solidly on the rock of Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. And today is a new day because of him because he lives. Because he lives. Thank you, Lord, that it's not too good to be true. That the tomb is empty and forevermore will be. And for all eternity, we'll declare his praises as his brothers and sisters by faith. Thank you, we pray, in the wonderful, mighty, precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.